What a wonderful chapter God has inspired for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And to that chapter we should turn. It is a unique chapter in many respects. One of those respects is that it deals exclusively with one subject. And that subject does not bleed over into any chapters following or any chapters before it but that it is a standalone chapter dedicated to one subject in 58 verses about the resurrection of the body. Chapter 14 is the gifts in the church, the rules for speaking in tongues and for prophets of the apostolic age. Chapter 16 is about giving and salutations and other concluding items that the apostle gives us in that chapter. But in chapter 15, it's about the resurrection of the dead. It's one of the most glorious chapters in the Bible because it reveals mysteries of the kingdom of heaven to us in a fuller way than any other place in the Bible in what it describes about the resurrection of the body and the resurrection of the dead and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It gives us more in one place. It gives us a history. We're going to get that in the first 11 verses. It gives us soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation, because it's going to explain if Christ... Be not risen, we are still in our sins. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen, we are yet in our sins. And so there's logical connections here that are important for our salvation. There's eschatology taught in verses 24 through 28, and again in verses 50 through 55, about future things and the events and timing of what is coming. There's practical reasons why the resurrection has to be true. There's rules about anthropology or the study of man and the order of things and that there are, is a body that cannot be discovered by a microscope or dissection because there's a spiritual body coming that's totally different. There's poetry, there's victory, and there's motivation. The concluding verse is so wonderful that uh, because of what's been contained in the 57 verses preceding it, We should abound in our work of the Lord, in His kingdom service, because there's a whole nother life coming. And it's all contained in 1 Corinthians 15. Here we have mysteries given to us that the world knows nothing about. The Hindu religion has no concept. The best they can come up with is that when you die, you may come back as a grasshopper, which I'll step on. I don't like grasshoppers. You know, the best that uh, Islam can come up with is you get to rest under a palm tree and have 72 virgins fanning you. Well, if I lived in Saudi Arabia, I'd want to think about a heaven like that, too. But we live here in Greenville, and we believe the Bible. We're not waiting to go to the happy hunting ground. We're waiting for the resurrection of the dead. We don't worship with buffalo chips. We worship with a King James Bible. And it tells us things that the world knows nothing about. There's no think tank and there's no laboratory that knows anything about what we are about to learn in one chapter of the Bible. They can't figure out what your tonsils are for. They can't figure out what your appendix are for until recently. They're not sure if you need a spleen. You can do without your gallbladder. They can't even figure out what we've got, let alone what we're going to get. Because what we're going to get is very different from what we've got. The Bible says it's like the difference between a celestial body and a terrestrial body. This is all in 1 Corinthians 15. They know nothing of it. This is for the simple saints of God who have believed the Bible for the last 2,000 years. We have a wonderful chapter, and let's love it. I hope today to simply give you... An overview of it. If we were to stop and slow down phrase by phrase, we'd be in it for weeks. And I have another approach that I want to take. We have sickness around us. We have weakness around us. We're going to have more death around us. But believers don't have to be afraid of death. Nor do they need to be distraught when it comes. There are, there are facts given to us here in this chapter that should cause us great joy and hope. This is a wonderful chapter to follow our study 
of God having concealed His truth from the world and having revealed it to us, His children, through the Bible. Because here's something you can't figure out by any scientific method. Because it hasn't been seen yet. They get excited when someone is clinically dead for two minutes and comes back to life by their definition. That person never died. Because if the spirit left their body, it would be dead and it would begin corruption right then. We're talking about 72 hours dead for our Lord Jesus Christ and Him coming back to glorious life. I mean glorious life. Where He would ask Thomas to stick his fingers into glorified wounds. When He would make a fish sandwich on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and eat it in front of His disciples. Now that is resurrection from the dead. And we are going to be raised from the dead like Him. And this is what has kept the saints of the Lord Jesus Christ together for 2,000 years. We are worshiping on the Lord's Day because it was this day that the Lord Jesus Christ appeared in a resurrected body. He was not a figment of their imagination, nor was it a spiritual resurrection. It was a physical resurrection of His body. And we believe that. And we're following that and we hold to that. Our children are going to school and reading anatomy texts and biology texts. But there's more body revelation in 1 Corinthians 15 than in any such text. Right. It tells us about a, a totally different body that we're going to get. And the Lord promises it to us right here because His Son already has it. The world dreams of immortality. We read about a Ponce de Leon who wanted to find the fountain of youth. They want to be immortal. 1 Corinthians 15 tells me about immortality, and it guarantees immortality by one who already has immortality. And the gospel is the message of immortality. It is so true that we do not describe death as dying. We describe death as going to sleep in Jesus. And it's just the body that goes to sleep. The soul and the spirit are with the Lord Jesus Christ the moment they leave the body. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. This is what we believe as Christians. This is a blessing God's given us. We could have been left to rot in Buddhism. We could have been left to rot in Hinduism, Confucianism, or any other ism. The Lord has blessed us with the gospel of grace to tell us about these things. And He's given us 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is the gospel. The good news and the glad tidings that the apostles carried to the world. Death is not the end. Death is the beginning. Death is the beginning. You don't get yourself an oak tree unless you put an acorn in the ground. You can't get yourself a rose bush unless you put a rose seed in the ground. You can't get a glorified body that is fit for heaven and eternity to dwell with God until you plant it in the ground. It's all in 1 Corinthians 15. It's wonderful. It is the blessed hope of the believer. It should give us great comfort. There was false teachers at the church at Corinth. The Sadducees denied the spirit body, they denied angels, and they denied the resurrection. Jesus had to deal with them during His ministry. The Sadducees had infected the Jews with the fact that there couldn't be a bodily, physical resurrection. The early church had to deal with that heresy. Paul tells us about two of their teachers in 2 Timothy chapter 2 who said the resurrection was past and overthrew the faith of some. You can have your faith overthrown. You can't have your name taken out of the book of life, but you can have your faith overthrown. And some of these Corinthians were having their faith overthrown by being taught that there was... No resurrection of the dead. And if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Jesus hasn't risen from the dead. And if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, our faith is vain and we are yet in our sins. And those that have already died are lost. It's all going to be right here in 1 Corinthians 15. You know what? We live in a time when in conservative churches like ours, there is a movement afoot called preterism. Preterism denies the resurrection of the body. Others would call us partial preterists. And we don't really care about their labels. 
All we know is that Matthew 24 was fulfilled in 70 A.D. And some other passages of the New Testament were fulfilled in 70 A.D. But we know something that wasn't fulfilled in 70 A.D. And that's the resurrection of the body. The resurrection of the body is still coming. But there is a a prophetic, a a, a category of prophetic interpretation called preterism that denies the resurrection of the body. They say there was a spiritual resurrection in 70 A.D. that every prophecy of the New Testament has already been fulfilled. Every single one. The final judgment, all of it. There's nothing left. The canon of the New Testament is worthless as far as telling us anything that is yet to come. It's the rage in certain circles. Listen, there are two ditches to every road at least. There may be more. But when we go down the road and we want to steer away from futurism, we don't steer all the way into the ditch of preterism to get as far away from futurism as we can. We want to go down the middle of the road and be as far away from both as possible, and that's found on the yellow line at the crown of the road in the pages of the Bible. You know, that's, that's important to realize there are people today like Hymenaeus and Philetus who are denying the resurrection of the body. But we're not going to. We have 1 Corinthians 15. Brethren, we are on a gigantic stage. And an enormous drama is playing out. And it's for the glory of God. But He's going to get Himself glory by what He's going to do to you. This is the whole Bible in one sentence. A gigantic drama for the glory of God by what He's going to do to you. It is Romans chapter 8, verses 17 through 25 that tells us the whole creation is groaning in travail and pain altogether until now. Because they're waiting for the adoption. Are you familiar with the verse? The whole creation is waiting for the adoption. To wit, I love it when the Holy Spirit does to wit, because then I don't have to try to figure it out. It's the Holy Spirit telling us, we are waiting for the adoption. To wit, the redemption of our bodies. The whole creation is groaning. Oak trees die. Animals kill each other. The whole universe is slowing down by the laws of thermodynamics because the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back to reveal us as His children to the whole universe. We shall be made manifest to the whole universe that we are the sons of God. We'll be given glorified bodies and we'll live with Him forever. The angels being our choir and our servants. Praise be to God. That's what the Bible teaches. For His children. He's adopted us and He's given us such great things. He tells us that the angels desire to look into these things. Because they're better than anything planned for them. It tells us in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10 that the principalities and powers in heaven are amazed by the things he's doing for his church. 1 Corinthians 15. The first two verses are an introduction. You could spend two weeks on the first two verses. Do you know why? Because it's a declaration of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it tells us there's a salvation attached to that gospel, which we rightly understand to be the salvation of conversion. Not regeneration, not justification, not election, not predestination, not adoption, and not glorification. It is the salvation of conversion. We could spend a lot of time just on two verses. But let me read two verses as Paul introduces his subject. Because the last two verses of chapter 14 are about speaking in tongues. There's a total change here, and it's indicated by the first word. Moreover. Since we've just spent three chapters on the gifts of the church, let's get to something exciting, Paul says. Or or let me tell you that that's what he could have meant by it. Moreover, I know Paul looked forward to this day because he tells us he did. He he couldn't wait for this day. And if he wouldn't have been of any use to the Philippian church, he said, let me get, get me out of here right now. Lord, take me up. The only reason he stayed was to be a benefit to the churches or he'd have gone. He wanted to be with the Lord and get this process started. We should have that attitude. You know, when you meet a believer, and you you know, they're they're, they're usually older in years because young people aren't wise enough to think this way. Unless they're really touched by grace. You ask them, how how are you feeling? Oh, I'm feeling okay, but I just wish I could go home to glory. Oh, yes. That sounds like Paul. That sounds like someone who's laid hold by faith. Of the Word of God. 
and who's ready for his tabernacle in heaven. That means another body. Because we're going to get rid of this tabernacle and it's going to be changed. We shall be changed. Behold, I show you a mystery. It's all in 1 Corinthians 15. First two verses are an introduction. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. Brethren, the gospel is what ties us together. By nature, there's lots of things we don't like about each other, and rightly so. Don't be offended. Just say amen because you know it's true. I'm just telling, I'm just telling everybody else what you think. We don't like each other by nature. That's okay because he's changed our nature. But what ties us together is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the word gospel is the good news of the glad tidings that God has sent from heaven for us to know. He has sent information for us to know things that we would not otherwise know. And it is our common belief around those things that holds us together. Amen. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which ye have received and wherein ye stand. Amen. You Corinthians were pagans. You Corinthians, some of you were Jew- Gentile proselytes. Some of you were converted Jews. All of you have rejected the religion you were part of to believe what I preached to you. And you stand in that doctrine. That's what makes you a church, is because you are bound together by what I declared to you. And I want to make sure that we understand, Paul declared some things to them. Paul didn't tell stories and anecdotes and illustrations, and he just didn't give testimonials. Paul declared stuff. He declared facts, facts of the gospel to these Corinthians. And that's where they stood. And he says, by which also ye are saved. If ye keep in memory. Now here's an important distinction that we make. Others tend not to make it. They read a verse that has the word saved in it and they just run right over that verse and they think that it's talking about deliverance from hell to heaven. But deliverance from hell to heaven is not in verse 2. Otherwise, you better hope you never get go senile. Because if you go senile and lose your memory, verse 2 says you're going to hell if hell is in verse 2. But hell isn't in verse 2. When it says, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory, the rest of the chapter tells us what salvation is there. It's a salvation from the misery of existence in this world without a life to come. Because verse 19 tells us, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. If there is no resurrection of the dead and no heaven and an eternal life waiting for us, we have the worst religion on earth. Now, most of the time, I'm telling you that every other religion is the worst religion, and it is. But in this verse, the Holy Spirit will admit, Paul will admit, that if we don't have heaven coming, our religion is the worst because our religion is a religion of self-denial. And if we're denying ourselves in this life and we don't have that life, That is horrible. But we deny ourselves in this life to lay hold of that life. To make our calling and our election sure in that life. And that's the salvation of verse 2. When false teachers come along and steal away from us the resurrection of the dead and the hope of eternal life in a new body in heaven, they steal away our comfort. They steal away our hope. They steal away our joy. They steal away our reward for living a life of self-denial. That is the salvation in verse 2. 1 Corinthians 15, 2 is a reference that you want to remember when you're dealing with Arminians who can't distinguish between the different phases of salvation. This is a phase dependent on your memory. Well, what happens if you lose your memory? And half of us are going to lose our memories. Is your name going to come out of the book of life? No. But it does tell you that the salvation in verse 2 is conditional upon your memory. But the salvation there is the salvation of the comfort and hope of the believer that Jesus Christ is coming for him and that his dead relatives that are in the church cemetery are all going to come out with him and they're going to be together in heaven. 
But if we have that doctrine taken away from us, we lose that salvation. That salvation from despair. That salvation from misery. That salvation from hopelessness. Like the rest of the world lives. That's the introduction. We have to keep moving or we're going to get in serious trouble time-wise. Verses 3 through 10. Let me read to you a history of the gospel. When Paul says, I declared unto you the gospel, what did he declare? The ten rules of Bible economics? How to have a great marriage? How to discipline your children? How to save money like the ant? Those things are all found in the Bible, and they are more minor aspects of the gospel. But he's going to tell you in verse 3, first of all, he started with something important. And what is that gospel? It is the history of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And we take it very personally when anyone messes with the personal history of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. When Paul says, first of all, I told you about Jesus, he doesn't mean that the Corinthians were the first one on his list to hear it because they weren't at all. They were Acts chapter 18. He's saying, of all the things I taught you, there was something I taught you that was first and it was most important. It was Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We do not like people messing with the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is Jehovah God unbegotten in every sense of the word. We do not like them messing with the humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ. He had a full physical body in every respect like ours, except without a sin nature. And when he rose from the dead, he had that full physical body. It was not a spiritual resurrection. It was not a spiritual representation. Right. We don't like to hear about our Lord Jesus Christ going to hell. Jesus didn't descend into hell. His body remained in the tomb for 72 hours, and His Spirit was with the Lord just like everyone else who dies. How do we know that? Because He told the thief on the cross, Today thou shalt be with Me in paradise, number one. Number two, Father, into thy hands I commit My Spirit. The Apostles' Creed is a lie. Jesus didn't descend into hell. Your Jesus may have, but our Jesus didn't. Where in the Bible do you come up with such nonsense as that? There's no second chance for Jesus going to hell and rescuing anyone down there. We don't like it when they mess with the Lord Jesus Christ because there are facts that have been delivered to the world 2,000 years ago and put in print, and that's where we rest our faith. Brethren, we have bet our lives on a book. Our lives in this world and our lives in the world to come on a book. Because without this book, you don't know these things. That's That's scary. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to bet your lives on a book? You would know about the Lord Jesus Christ without this book. There's not enough historical evidence extant to prove Jesus Christ and all that this book says about Him without this book. Are you ready? Well, here's what Paul delivered. This is the gospel. And this is what we always want to keep chief in our hearts, our homes, and our church. Verse 3 through verse 10. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. How that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And that He was seen of Cephas. Then of the twelve, after that, he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles." That I'm not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, 
but the grace of God which was with me. Amen and amen. What wonderful verses. Eight verses, verses 3 through 10 of 1 Corinthians 15. This is the gospel. Paul said, I've already delivered it to you. You already received it and you already stand in it as a church. Because I revealed to you historical facts about Jesus of Nazareth. He died for our sins. Isaiah, according to the scriptures. Isaiah 53 tells us that he would be cut off for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. Daniel chapter 9 says the Messiah would be cut off, but not for his own sins. For our sins. Psalm 22 describes him on the cross in prophecy, crying out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Psalm 16 describes that he wouldn't be left in corruption, meaning he would have died, but he didn't stay dead. It's in the Old Testament. Jesus died according to the Scriptures. I opened to you the Old Testament Scriptures and showed you that Jesus of Nazareth, a New Testament character, had died according to the Old Testament prophecies. That's what I delivered to you. That's verse 3. According to the Scriptures. Verse 4, that he was buried after he died. And that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, what scriptures in the Old Testament tell us that he was going to be in the ground three days and three nights? Jonah tells us that. Jesus tells us that about Jonah. (laughs) Sorry, brother. Jesus tells us that about Jonah. But these are New Testament scriptures. You know what the Catholics tell us? The Catholics tell us the New Testament canon didn't come together until 397 A.D. at the church council at Carthage. I don't know what their church was doing at Carthage, but our church wouldn't have shown up at Carthage. Are you kidding me? The apostles had the New Testament scriptures. Peter said, as Paul has written in them, all his epistles, some things hard to be understood. Does that sound like Peter had Paul's epistles? Do you know when you read Paul, when you read Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 18, he quotes Luke in Luke chapter 10? Paul quotes Luke. So when Paul says he rose the third day according to the Scriptures, what Scriptures tell us that Jesus was going to rise after three days? New Testament Scriptures. Amen. So Paul's pulling Old Testament and New Testament Scriptures. Why in the world by 55 or 60 A.D. were the Gospels not written? Are you kidding me? What were Matthew, Mark, and Luke doing? Did they take a 20-year sabbatical? Or when Jesus ascended up into heaven, they sat down and took quill and paper and wrote out a gospel account of what He did during His life. Where in the world? Listen, they've eaten too many crackers that they think is God. They're hallucinating. Verse 5, and that he was seen of Cephas. Do you know who Cephas is? This church respected Cephas. If you've read 1 Corinthians, you know that uh, some of them said they were of Apollos, some of Paul, some of Jesus. But there was another category there that said they were of Peter or Cephas. Luke chapter 24 tells us that Jesus had a private appearing with Peter. Simon, as he's called in Luke 24 and verse 34, after he had appeared to Mary Magdalene, to whom he appeared first, according to Mark 16 and verse 9. But he appeared, he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. Oh, this is good. Can I, can I chase a rabbit for one minute? Sometimes when we go into Daniel chapter 7, and we're dealing with the ten horns of the Roman Empire that is in Daniel chapter 7, or we go into Revelation chapter 12, 13, 17, or 18, where we've got those same horns, and people say, well, I want you to identify exactly what those ten horns are. Well, you just need to remember that you need to ask them, I want you to identify what 12 saw Jesus risen from the dead. Because if I remember right, Judas Iscariot had already dashed his bowels across the potter's field before Jesus even got in the tomb. Can the Bible use the word 12 to describe a group? without you getting all hung up on the numeral? Is the Lord allowed to do that? Is the Lord allowed to tell you that when Jehu rode into Samaria, two or three eunuchs looked out a window? Is the Lord allowed to use that kind of language since you use it every day of your life? Is it okay for Him to use language like that? Two or three eunuchs looked out. 
the Holy Spirit sounds so uncertain in that situation. I love it. He wrote the Bible for us, brethren. And if you want to get hung up on numbers, then you're going to have to play. Anyway, that was just a rabbit. Boom, the rabbit's dead. Let's go to verse 6. After that, he was... Did you get my point? I don't, I don't want to leave a rabbit without you knowing what we just killed and skinned. And it's in the pot. Do you understand? When Sometimes the Bible uses a term that's a number, like 12, and it's referring to a thing by concept, not by a literal number. Because the apostles started as 12, they went to 11, then they went to 12, then they went to at least 15, and there could have been many more that we don't know of by name. Paul was an apostle. That makes 13. We got Matthias. We got Judas. Well, that would make 14. Barnabas was an apostle. That makes 15. James was an apostle, the brother of our Lord. That makes 16. I mean, where do you want to stop? How about the 12 tribes? I know, I'm back in the pot. With the rabbit. I'm sorry. The rabbit. How about the 12 tribes of Israel? When I read my Bible, I find 14 of them at least. If I pull out Levi and I pull out Joseph, I'm down to ten. If I take Joseph's two sons, who were two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh, and put the four back in, I've got fourteen. In the Bible, you'll have different combinations of the fourteen names totaling twelve. Don't get hung up on the number twelve unless you're looking at the thing called Israel. Or the twelve the thing called the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's to be understood, Judas was dead, so there were eleven, and Matthias had seen the Lord Jesus Christ also, because when he was added to the number to make twelve, in Acts chapter 1, the condition was that he had seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6, After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. Do you know why that last half of that verse is important? If they denied what I'm telling you, then they would have been writing books against this record right now. But they weren't. And if you want to take a trip across the Mediterranean Sea, you Corinthians, and go check out many of these that are still alive, you can find out that they saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't just a little tiny group of 12 apostles or 15 apostles. It had 500 brethren at one time that were able to confirm with each other, look at that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you agree? Yes, I agree. Look at his wounds. 500 brethren at once. This is the record of the gospel. It's been put in writing for us. But remember, the Corinthians did not have 1 Corinthians 15. They had Paul writing this to them for the first time when this epistle was read in their church. But he had delivered this to them orally. Of whom the greater part remain unto this present and some are fallen asleep. i got to chase another one. That language. The greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. Did Jesus once say that uh, the Son of Man is going to be, re- be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, and there be some of you standing here that shall not taste of death? Right. This one says some are fallen asleep, meaning the smaller amount had died, the greater part was still alive. Jesus was saying another event was coming where the greater part would have died, and the smaller part would be still be alive. Yeah. That's all I'm going to take. 55 A.D. versus 70 A.D. Does 15 years make a difference when you start addressing people in 30 A.D. when they're 30 years old or older? Okay. I love it if we'll read every verse of it. If we'll read every verse of it, it'll make us wise. Verse 7, after that he was seen of James. This James is singled out. Is there a James in the Bible that needs to be singled out because he wasn't part of the twelve? The Lord's brother. Amen. James didn't believe on Jesus till he went to the crucifixion. And then he rose from the dead and he appeared to his brother James. And James became an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is the resurrection important? Yes, it's important. Oh, that's, why, that's what we believe. That God sent His Son into the world to lay down His life to pay for our sins by a substitutionary death. That He was buried. That He rose again the third day. That He sits at God's right hand. And He's coming for us to deliver us out of this present evil world into His presence forever. That's the Gospel. We believe it. James believed it after he saw his brother risen from the dead. 
than of all the apostles. Verse 7, that could easily have been his ascension into heaven. Verse 8, and last of all, he was seen of me also as of one born and of due time. The, the Apostle Paul saw the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul could not be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ unless he had seen the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the arguments that we make against the charismatic churches of our generation that claim they have an apostle leading their church, they don't have any apostle leading their church for several reasons, but one of which is an apostle had to have seen the physical body of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Right. Second of all, they had to be able to do all the works of an apostle, and these guys can't do any of them. But Paul saw the Lord Jesus Christ. He says so in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Do you remember what road he was on when he saw him for the first time? Do you know that he was told he was going to have visions? Do you know that when he was in the temple praying, he was in a trance and he had a vision? And the Lord Jesus Christ said this and that. Do you know he went into Arabia? Do you know he was taught these things personally by the Lord Jesus Christ? When he says in verse 3, I delivered unto you that which also I received... He tells you in Galatians chapter 1, I didn't receive these things from anyone, including the pillars at Jerusalem. I did not receive these things from the other apostles. I received them by direct revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was special. The Lord loves us Gentiles. Are you thankful for our brother Paul that God raised up and Jesus appeared to him out out of the ordinary? No one else got to see him in the appearances to Paul. But for our benefit, there's more of the New Testament, the epistles to the churches written by Paul than anyone else. These are precious indeed. And Paul wasn't just giving us ideas he got from the other apostles. He's giving us facts that he declared that were given to him by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so is the Lord's Supper. When we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, does it say there the same words as right here? For I received of the Lord. Amen. He, was, he didn't get to be at the Last Supper. So the Lord Jesus Christ showed him what the Last Supper looked like and what our supper ought to look like. First right. Corinthians chapter 11. I declared unto you things that were given to me. Thank you, Lord. Right. You know enough about Paul. We don't need to spend more time on those verses. By the grace of God, I am what I am. In verse 10. And his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. Oh, brethren, let's not let any of God's grace be bestowed upon us in vain. His grace of election can't be bestowed in vain. His his grace of justification can't be in vain. His grace of regeneration can't be in vain. His grace of glorification can't be in vain. But his grace of conversion can be in vain. His grace of the Holy Spirit in the practical phase of our salvation can be in vain because we can quench and grieve that Holy Spirit, but... Paul did not do so. Paul took that energy and that person and that power and that faith from the Lord Jesus Christ by His grace through the Spirit, and he ran with all his might. And that's how we ought to live. Not halfway, not partway, but all of the way by the grace of God. We can squander it. We can have the world steal it. We can have it dulled. Our faith can be overthrown. We can lose our memory about what we've been taught, and we do not amount to what Paul did. Paul did not change. Paul said, I have kept the faith. Does that sound like someone whose faith was overthrown? I have kept the faith. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. He didn't retire on the job like so many Christians. We have a war to fight. And you're AWOL if you're not fighting every single day of your life. You're absent without leave. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul said, I labored more abundantly than they all, but he still gave God the credit for it. Because if the Lord hadn't reached down and turned the Apostle Paul around, he'd have been laboring in the wrong direction. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. What a combination. That's, how we're, that's not pride. That's not arrogancy in 1 Corinthians 15.10. That is humility. God gave me his grace or I wouldn't be anything. But what God gave me in humble obedience, I took off and ran. That is not arrogancy. Okay. We're through verse 10. That's the history of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the the people that it names and the numbers. Because it wants to establish that there is a certain fact in the gospel. 
that those Corinthians had believed, been baptized to it, had joined together in a church function, and stood in it. And that fact was, Jesus rose from the dead according to the scriptural record of the gospel accounts, and we saw him, and I told you when I was with you about the various people that saw him. Now, you've got a problem at Corinth, and that's defined for us in verses 11 and 12. Therefore, because of this historical record, therefore, whether it were I, all the other apostles, no, whether I, Paul, or they, the other apostles, so we preach, and so ye believed. That historical record of the first ten verses, I preached it, the other apostles preached it, and you believed it, just as we together preached it. That Christ rose from the dead according to the Scriptures. Verse 12, Now if Christ be preached that He rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? This is what heresy is. You would not believe. I get, I get accused by email by people who don't like the word heretic. Now, I don't like the word heretic either. I don't want the Bible calling me a heretic, and I don't want any Bible believer calling me a heretic. But when we call someone a heretic, we're not saying they're going to hell. Right. We're saying you're not believing the truth. Right. That's what the word heresy means. Yeah. You have varied from the truth. You have wandered from the truth. This was heresy at the church at Corinth. It didn't matter whether it was me preaching, Peter preaching, or any other apostle preaching. We preached one message. Jesus died, was buried, and He rose again. Now why are there among you at Corinth some teachers teaching something different that Jesus didn't... No, no, they didn't teach that. They taught there is no resurrection of the dead. That's verse 12. That there is no resurrection of the dead. Can you believe that a church Paul started? A church Paul started. And Acts 18 describes his labors at that place. Would end up allowing teachers that denied the resurrection of the dead. That is how scary it is. To stand in a church and hold fast to a doctrine. That is why so many doctrines are being lost today. Because there is not enough emphasis on holding fast to the doctrine of Scripture. This was only in a few years. A few years. Maybe five. Maybe three. Maybe seven. Just a few years. They were allowing teachers. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that he was afraid for them because they were a weak church. I fear if any, if anyone comes preaching another Jesus or another gospel or another spirit, I fear that you might well bear with him. I'm afraid that you Corinthians just might believe such a message. This is why there was so much preaching on the little epistle of Jude. That we are to earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. Amen. Do you know when it was once delivered? By direct revelation of the apostle, from the, to the apostle Paul by the Lord Jesus Christ. It was once delivered to the saints. That is why all the preaching on the epistle of Jude. That's why we have to be tenacious for the truth. And that's why we have no tolerance for anyone that has a brighter idea. Until they can take their brighter idea and multiply it by an overwhelming tsunami of Bible evidence, we couldn't care less about their idea. Right. We have been given to us a body of truth and we're going to hold that body of truth until the tsunami washes away some point of truth and leaves in its place a better point of truth that better reconciles with the body of, of truth in the Bible. Amen. This is where we have to stand. If we change every time somebody gets a brighter idea, if I was to take a survey of this audience right now, and if there were 140 souls here, by the time I got done, 30 of you would want to give another one so we would end up with 170. Bethany's got a totally different idea on Jesus than charity. And you adults that think I'm picking on little children are no better. And neither am I. Do you know where our information comes from? Right here. The written pages of Scripture. And that is where we stand as a church. And if this is the last time I ever get to address you, you young men in this church that fear God and love the truth of the gospel, never let anybody come in here and change one iota of what we believe until a tsunami of evidence washes it away. And if it's not overwhelming, incontrovertible, powerful evidence that it's the truth, it's garbage. It's garbage. We all are filled with garbage. 
That's why the preaching of the gospel according to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 is to cast down every imagination that's in our hearts because we've all got brighter ideas. Lord, thank you. Look at this poor church. Denying the resurrection of the dead. Watch Paul take care of this one. He's going to point out, you want, you want to hold that position that there's no resurrection of the dead? Let's see where it leaves you and where it leaves the church cemetery. Now remember, the church cemetery was full here. They had already asked the city for another couple of acres. Do you know how I know that? Do you know how you can know that? Because chapter 11 comes first, doesn't it? And chapter 11 said that there were many that were sick, many were weak, and many were already asleep from the Corinthian church because of the way they were treating the Lord's Supper. So they had a great big church cemetery outside. It's important to Paul's reasoning right now for you to grasp that. They had had a lot of relatives die in this church under God's chastening judgment. Chastening judgment. Chastening judgment is very different from condemnation with the world. Their bodies were in the cemetery, but their souls were in heaven. You can prove it from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The reason that he chastened them and put their bodies in the cemetery is so they wouldn't be condemned with the world. That is what the Bible teaches in 1 Corinthians 11. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. Do you know, you, do you know that you can be so naughty? And I, I use that word in the sense of James 1.21. Do you know that you can be so naughty that God will just take your life away? I mean, you'll go to heaven. But you're going to be cut off before your time. It had happened to many at Corinth. Now watch Paul take them apart. They teach. They were teaching. The false teachers at Corinth. There is no resurrection of the dead. A general proposition. There is no such thing as a resurrection of physically dead bodies. Impossible. Impossible. They're going to make fun of it when we get down to verse 35. But don't go there yet. Paul's going to take care of them there too, but he's going to take care of them here with the doctrine of salvation. Verse 13. If there be no resurrection of the dead, if the heresy being taught at Corinth is true, then is Christ not risen? He started out with Christ being risen in ten verses. If you're going to deny the the resurrection of the dead in general, then Christ isn't risen. Verse 14. And if Christ be not risen, this is so logical. Do you like A equals B, B equals C, A equals C? You remember some of those axioms from simple math, geometry? Maybe you didn't like them when you were learning them. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain. Because in verse 12, he said, verses 11 and 12, and so we preached, and so ye believed. We, we preached that Jesus rose from the dead. But if you have men teaching in your church that there is no resurrection of the dead, then Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we've been preaching a lie and you've been believing a lie. Because our church at Corinth, Paul is saying, is built on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead according to the Scriptures. Is this logical? Are you able to connect with it? It's, It's just... That's how we study the Bible and that's how we believe by faith. Faith is very logical. Faith is far more logical than anything the world has to offer. Amen. Verse 15. Yay! Let's just keep going here with this idiotic, logical connections from your premise. Your premise that there is no resurrection of the dead. Yay! And we are found false witnesses of God. If you're allowing teachers in the church at Corinth that teach there is no resurrection of the dead, then the apostles are liars. Because we teach that Jesus rose from the dead. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Jesus couldn't have risen from the dead. But we teach that Jesus rose from the dead. Therefore, you're making us liars. And them telling the truth? Just remember, anybody that comes up with a brighter idea, their brighter idea means that every one of you and the truth that we have held in this church and the thousands of martyrs that have given their lives for that truth are liars. Remember, just keep that in mind. That's part of the tsunami of evidence that is necessary before we change anything. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. If your general proposition stands, then Jesus didn't rise and we're liars. Verse 16, for if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. I thought that's what He said in verse 13. 
Why does he say in verse 16 what he said in verse 13? Because he's trying to help out the slow of heart. Or the slow of mind. It's very logical what he's saying, but he's repeating it to get the point across. Folks, you Christians at Corinth, if you deny the resurrection of the dead, you've denied that Jesus rose from the dead. Then why are you Christians? Verse 16. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. You're not even saved in the church at Corinth. If your proposition that there is no resurrection of the dead stands. Because if your proposition stands, then Jesus didn't rise. And if Jesus didn't rise, you're still in your sins because your sins overwhelmed Him and there's still enough left to send you to hell. Oh, sweet. Verse 17, If Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. Everyone out there in the church cemetery is, is gone to hell. If they're proper, do you see the logical connections? Right. If A equals B and B equals C and C equals D, then A equals D. If your proposition stands that there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ did not rise from the dead. If Christ did not rise from the dead, you're in your sins, and all those dead relatives in the church cemetery are in hell. That's pretty powerful. That's pretty powerful. Because, verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. You have allowed false teachers to come into the church at Corinth that have taken away the blessed hope of the believer. And you have left us all hopeless. Our dead relatives were hopeless about them and we're hopeless about ourselves because we're going to die in our sins because Jesus did not lift the sin debt off of us. If He didn't rise from the dead and He didn't rise from the dead, if your proposition is true, there is no resurrection of the dead. Are you able to follow all that? See it clearly that the Apostle Paul is one logical rhetorician? Thank you, Lord. Verse 20, and here's what Paul would say to all that. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. I've given you enough logical reasoning to know that if, if there's even a half-truth to what your general proposition states, you're in your sins, this isn't a church, we have no gospel, there is no hope, the cemetery is in, there, in hell. And we're liars. Let's get back to the truth of the first ten verses, Paul says. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. You Corinthians should understand the doctrine of representation. When I was with you, I taught you about the first Adam that condemned the entire race to sin and death. And I taught you about the second Adam that delivered us from sin and death. Since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. You understood that once, and I'm just going to declare it now because I'm declaring something to you that was historically proven by many witnesses and was taught to you and you believed it, and you stand in it, and it's the basis for your church, and without it, we are totally lost. This is the truth. Adam was representative of the human race that was put in him, seminally, through his relationship with his wife Eve. All of us have descended from Adam and Eve. All of us were in Adam, and by Adam's sin, death came. And death reigned over us because of Adam's transgression. Romans chapter 5 teaches that clearly. But by man came also the resurrection of the dead. There is salvation for part of the human race. And that part of the human race is that part that is in the second Adam, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And how do we get in the Lord Jesus Christ? We get in the Lord Jesus Christ by electing grace before the foundation of the world, when we were chosen in Christ before the world began. When His purpose and grace was given to us in Christ before the foundation of the world. 2 Timothy 1.9 Verse 22, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Everyone that's related to Adam dies. Everyone related to Christ is going to be made alive. That is the resurrection of the dead. He's no longer arguing logically. He is declaring gospel facts. Verse 23, but every man in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Jesus had to go first. And if you say there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ isn't raised from the dead. But he is raised from the dead and he went first. Christ the first fruits. Afterward, they that are Christ at his coming. 
When the Lord Jesus Christ comes the second time, there is going to be a resurrection of the dead. And He's going to get the rest of the harvest. He's the first fruits. The rest of the harvest is you. He's going to get us. He's appeared in heaven already in a glorified body before God Almighty. And He's there at His right hand and He's coming to get us. So that God gets His complete harvest. So that the Lord Jesus Christ can present us to God. As Hebrews 2.13 describes, Behold, I and the children which Thou hast given Me. He is going to gather together in one all things in heaven and all things on earth. And He's going to deliver up the entire kingdom to, the Lord, to God. Right. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that. He's going to get together the spirits of just men made perfect in heaven. He's going to get together those that are still remaining on earth. He's going to provide their bodies back to them, all of them, put them together and present it to God. This is what the world's moving toward. And there's nothing in the Greenville News nor the New York Times about it this day. It's a terrible shame. You don't read about it in your biology books. You don't read about it in history books. You don't read about it in any kind of a book except this book. Verse 24, then cometh the end. That is the end. You know, prophecy is very simple if people would just believe the Bible. We don't need charts showing all the different things and the four comings of the Lord Jesus Christ that they create. There is no seven-year tribulation taught anywhere in the Bible whatsoever. Then cometh the end. When? At the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that's the event in the last part of verse 23. That's what the word end in verse 24 applies to. There's no seven-year tribulation. I don't care if you're pre-trib, post-trib, or mid-trib. There's no 1,000-year millennium of carnal earthly animal sacrifices on earth with Jesus sitting on some stinking synthetic throne in Israel. He's sitting on the throne of David right now at the right hand of God, reigning over a spiritual kingdom and with His saints. And He's waiting to put all enemies under His feet. And He's about to do that because we are at the end of the prophetic timetable that the Bible does teach. It's glorious. Then cometh the end. There aren't all these other comings. They tell us that Jesus is going to come in some so-called rapture. Jesus is going to appear in the sky. We do we do believe that because 1 Thessalonians 4 and Acts chapter 1 tells us that. But we don't believe in any rapture. He's going to take part here, part there, part here, part there. He's not coming a second time, then a third time, then a fourth time. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God. Do you know what that kingdom is? It's all of us saved, brethren. Some in heaven and some on earth. He's going to get us all together and present us to God. This is the most glorious moment in the entire universe. You're going to be blessing God like you've never blessed Him in your entire existence. And God's going to soak up every bit of it. The angel choirs are going to burst forth. This is what the earth is moving toward. It is not moving toward getting a man on Mars. It is moving toward this. When He shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for He must reign. I wonder what He's doing right now. He's reigning, for He must reign till He hath put all enemies under His feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For He hath put all things under His feet. That's speaking of God. But when He saith all things are put under Him, it is manifest that He is accepted, which did put all things under Him. Now, you may not like that verse. It may sound too wordy to you. But 1 Corinthians 15, 27 is an important verse. If you read Psalm 8, 6, and you read Hebrews chapter 2, it says all things are under the feet of Christ. Does that mean God is under the feet of Christ? Well, we have 1 Corinthians 15, 27 to keep you from thinking that God is under the feet of Christ. So that's why we compare the Bible. We compare Scripture with Scripture. Verse 28, When all things shall be subdued unto Him, that is, to Jesus Christ, then shall the Son also Himself be subject unto Him, that put all things under Him, that God may be all in all. And we believe that about the Lord Jesus Christ, that in His human nature as the mediator between God and men, He is subordinate to to God Almighty. The Lord Jesus Christ is subordinate to God in His human nature as the God-man. In His divine nature, He is God Almighty, blessed forever. Jehovah, unbegotten in every sense of the word. And there we are at verse 28. Lord, forgive me. Have mercy upon me. This This is what I like about prophecy right here. You may see me get excited about the four beasts in Daniel 7 and the ten horns and the little horn that comes up and makes war. Oh no, there's more in Daniel 7. Do you know what more is in Daniel 7? The Son of Man comes and destroys the little horn and throws him to the burning flame 
and appears before the Ancient of Days. Yes. Yes. That's Second Thessalonians 2. And that's what we get excited about. We get excited about what's right here. The Lord Jesus Christ coming, that is the end. He takes us, He takes those in heaven, puts us together, gives us our bodies back. And brethren, He's going to stand in front of us before the universe as the angels look on with their mouths agaping. And the wicked and the devils are cast into the lake of fire, and He's going to present us to God. Then cometh the end. This is all based on the resurrection of the dead. Because if there is no resurrection of the dead, Christ is not raised from the dead. If Christ is not raised from the dead, then the gospel is a lie. If Christ is not raised from the dead, you are still in your sins. If Christ is not raised from the dead, every dead believer that we've committed to the grave is lost forever. And if Christ isn't raised from the dead, then the second Adam failed to undo the work of the first Adam, and we are lost. But now Christ is risen from the dead, is how I conclude, as our brother did in verse 20. Christ is risen from the dead.